The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to turn to God's Word, a small epistle near the end of the New Testament, just before the letters of John, comes Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 3. I'm also going to read from chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. Our text is really more Second Peter, but I wanted to hold out there and tantalize you a little bit with Revelation 21, which we'll look at in a better way, I, think, I plan and hope next time. I have the happy task of continuing with this topical series of messages, After Death What? I say happy task because I contrast it with where I was in early November, knowing that I was going to speak to you four weeks in a row on the most difficult and painful subject of all, the fate of unbelievers in eternity. We now turn our attention in January and February to the fate of believers in eternity. And there are happy things, wondrous things to speak about. One of them puts before us a reality that not all are aware of that Second Peter 3 helps to bring into focus. Listen as I read God's Word beginning at verse 8 through verse 14. Peter writes, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness." So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with Him. And just to stretch the vision for you, I won't be developing this text so much today, but just to hold it out there, I think I'll just read the first four verses, first five verses of Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now 
The dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And so is God's word in every way and in every part, trustworthy and true. Many of you here, older folks especially, will know an old gospel song that says, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue, and the angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. There's something in that song that is a good and proper biblical emphasis, the emphasis that we cannot allow ourselves to be entirely attached to life today, lest we stop being what the Bible calls strangers and pilgrims on the earth, realizing that this life is not all there is. But I see a problem in that song as well. If you would look for that song to give you a very good definition of heaven, because you don't have a very good definition in the phrase, somewhere beyond the blue. In fact, we look to the Word of God for a better definition of the final home of God's people with Himself. And to the amazement of some people who have fallen for the idea that heaven is somewhere in dim vapors or nebulae or something of outer space someplace, they are shocked to hear what the Bible has to teach when it says that the final estate of heaven will be a renewed version of planet earth. This present world after, my tongue is in my cheek, an extreme home makeover will be the final home of righteousness. This is a wonderful thing and a truth that some people even Christians of long standing have almost never even considered. The doctrine of heaven is certainly a popular topic. Write a book on it, and if it's of any value at all, it will sell. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God has put eternity in our hearts. It's like a seed planted there, our longing for the eternal life. We seem to know as creatures that we are meant for something more than what this life offers. But there are some problems when we begin thinking about heaven and eternal life. One is that there's a predominating influence operating in most people to try to fill in the details or connect the lines regarding what heaven is out of our own imagination or our own experiences. One very popular way to see this today, and you can find it in, in many kinds of bookstores, are the, the books that talk about so-called near-death experiences. And some of them are quite fascinating and well-intentioned. 
But you need to be pretty careful when somebody's writing about some experience where maybe they didn't, uh, you know, have a, a brainwave or an EKG line showing for a certain period of time, and they would tell you about lights and, and forms and hearing words and, and things and say, now this is, you can learn about heaven from this. I wouldn't go to that as an authority. God's Word is a far greater authority. And there's also that related idea of people saying, well, I think heaven is like this. And then we spin out just like when people say, I, my God is like this. And we invent it to fulfill what we would like it to be. There are even people who have not looked at the biblical information and have let um, the idea of cartoonists perhaps supply their view of heaven, and they say, what a boring existence. I can't imagine it, just sitting around waiting for choir practice or something. It doesn't sound interesting at all. But there's another problem with thinking of heaven, and that's the fact that we are too preoccupied with this world. Whatever it is in this world that occupies you, your career, your education, your family, goals that you have in business or something. Someone said, I don't have a quarter with me, but if you took a quarter, it's a rather small coin, doesn't buy very much, it's not worth a lot today, and yet I could hold a quarter right up against the lens of my glasses, and that quarter would block out close to 50% of my vision. Everybody on this side, I can't see. My field of vision is gone. And if I take two of those worthless objects and put them up close, almost 100% of my vision of peripheral things is gone. Now, we do this with the things we're occupied in this world. We get them up real close, and they completely blot out our view of eternal things. And so we think of heaven and eternal life as something, well, I I guess I'm glad it's out there, and I guess I'm going to experience it someday, but I really don't want to think about it very much because it represents a kind of extreme and radical change, and I don't want my life interrupted like that. I like my life. I'm enjoying it as it is. Well, I'd ask you to become oriented to where I am in developing a flow of subjects for you under this theme of after death, what? I began looking at death in the biblical perspective, seeing it as an enemy, as an invader, as a judgment, not part of God's original plan. We looked at Old Testament views of it. We looked at New Testament views. We followed those up to the experience of the believer at death who dies and should be Secure if they belong to Christ in the knowledge and the certainty that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. My soul is with Christ immediately after death. The Scriptures are very clear about that. That is the believer's hope and the believer's confidence. We followed it up to the return of Christ in history, an important turning point for all of these things. And then I took a a departure and talked about the future for the unbeliever. And that occupied us for quite a few weeks in October and November. Now we're done with that. I'm not going to deal with the unbeliever's future in any substantial way further now. But what we need to do then is get our minds back at that event called the day of the Lord or the return of Christ when Christ comes and brings with Him those who have fallen asleep, as 1 Thessalonians 4 calls them. They're not literally sleeping. Sleep is just a metaphor for waking up in the resurrection. They are conscious in the presence of Christ 
as redeemed souls. That's the best way we can picture it because the resurrection of their bodies awaits that day of Christ's coming. So that's a first stage of heaven. Some call it the intermediate state. I prefer the term, it's my own term, immediate heaven because it is not a waiting room. You're not asleep. You are conscious in the presence of the living God. You can take that to the bank of eternity because of Christ. Now, we know that there's going to be a general resurrection. Unbelievers are judged and banished from the presence of God. Believers are given resurrection bodies. But there's something to insert in that sequence that we're going to consider today. Remember, as we talk about all of these things, 1 Corinthians 2.9 has a reminder that eye has not seen, ear hasn't heard, the mind of man has never had before it the, the fullness of what we're talking about here. And yet, that same verse, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, yet God has revealed it to us. He hasn't left us clueless. He's given us some strong indicators that we can take hold of, some heavy hints of what heaven will be like. Before we would go to the subject of a believer's resurrection body, which I truly hope to deal with more than one Sunday in this month of January, we need to consider something else that happens at the return of Christ. And that is what we can only call the resurrection of our planet and of the cosmos. Now, it's surprising that many people have almost never heard anything about this. And as I said, they have this sort of Casper the ghost and angels walking around with harps on cloudland idea of heaven, and the cartoonists feed that and delight in it, and they don't know anything about it, so they just picture whatever they want. And they think, how boring, how sterile. I don't want an existence like that. When Scripture is saying the final reality that those in resurrection bodies will inhabit is a resurrected world. God is going to save not only individuals, but the cosmos itself is going to go from being paradise lost to paradise regained. And we may expect, I would think, in that world, beauty such as our eyes have never seen before, sensory delights, relationships, experiences, learning, worship, unending joy and peace and rest in God our Savior. Boring? Not at all. The word won't even occur to you, I promise you. Now, if I can look, before I look at 2 Peter 3 this morning, I just want to give this quick introductory word to you to give you some overall perspective on this, because this is a great truth that unites the Scripture from beginning to end. The Bible's a unified book. It's not chopped up into a lot of unrelated pieces. And here we see it. First of all, a background point that God's great plan is for Eden's restoration. You see, the Bible painted Adam as being in a unique fellowship with God before the fall. He walked with God in the cool of the day. The creator and the creature in his image communicated with one another, but the fall wrecked that in Genesis 3. And yet there's a sense in which you could see Scripture teaching us that we, the descendants of Adam and Eve, the descendants of the fall, have ached ever since to see that restored again. 
to get back to that relationship with God that we lost. Eden was like a temple where we had the best worship that ever occurred on earth, but it was pre-fall worship. We didn't have to have the mediating agency of even a Bible because we could have talked with God as Adam and Eve did. And now we all, all our worship is indirect with God. Did you ever think about the fact of what the last two chapters of the Bible have in common with the first two? If you would understand this, you would have a great deal of perspective on Scripture as a whole. In the first two chapters, you have man created, and in this wonderful fellowship with God, unspotted, untainted, uninterrupted. What do you have in the last two chapters, 21 and 22 of Revelation? The same thing. Mankind restored in this wonderful new heaven, new Jerusalem, this wonderful new relationship with God dwelling in the midst. I would tell you this, a child can draw this diagram of Bible history. It's really easy, but it will help you to remember it. You could separate mankind's existence into three epochs or eras. The first is in Genesis 1 and 2. Mankind as created without sin in perfect fellowship with God. The second begins in Genesis 3 and extends the entire distance all the way to Revelation chapter 20. The entire story of the fall in sin and of Christ and redemption and God doing His marvelous work in history, bringing us back, winning us back through Christ. And then the third epoch, Revelation 21 and 22, Eden restored. You see God's wonderful plan? Trace the, just a little homework assignment, trace the tree of life in the Bible. Where is it? Why, it's in Genesis 2, and it's in Revelation 21 and 22. There's something going on there. God is telling us that His final destination in history is to restore His communion with redeemed mankind in Eden. Isaiah 11 spoke about a day that would come, an ideal-sounding day when the wolf would live with the lamb, and the leopard would dwell beside the goat. And you see these paintings from early Pennsylvania history, Quaker paintings of the peaceable kingdom. Maybe you've asked yourself, well, when was that supposed to happen? It happens when God brings Eden back. It happens when history reaches its culmination. Isaiah also spoke about this more directly in both chapters 65 and 66, the last two chapters of that great prophetic book. Isaiah 65, 17, the Lord speaks there and says, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah is a book that predicts so many things, the coming of Christ and the great works that God is doing, and it ends with a prediction of what God will do finally. I'm going to remake everything. I'm going to remake it under Christ as its head. And therefore, when we come to 2 Peter 3.13, it's just echoing those predictions when it says, in keeping with the Lord's promises, read Isaiah 65 and 66, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Jesus himself spoke in Matthew 19 about the renewal of all things with himself at its head. And so we correctly say God's great plan for history is that Eden would one day be restored. A writer named Paul Marshall said this. Let me quote a few sentences. This world is to be our home. It is to be our home. We are made to live here. 
Yes, it has been devastated by sin, he said, but God's plan is to put that right. Therefore, we look forward to newly restored bodies, a restored heaven and earth. This world, Marshall wrote, will be healed, becoming at last what God intended it to be from the beginning. God's great plan is for Eden to be restored. Now in the second place, more directly to our text, we say this, that heaven and earth are going to be united as one. There's a cosmic work planned by God. Ephesians 1.10 talked about it. God's aim was to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. Heaven is presently God's home. Where is that? No one can say but it's a real place of God's dwelling. Earth is now our home, and that's a separate place from heaven, but God is going to bring them together. And in such a way that Christ will be all in all, he's called in Scripture. He will be head over everything. Now, naturally, we're curious about how in the world will this happen. And one of the great places where the Bible brings it into focus is 2 Peter 3. It's, it's a thing that it just isn't spoken about a lot, and even when it's spoken about here, it leaves some questions unanswered. But Second Peter 3 is based on what we call the day of the Lord. That's Christ's return. Somehow, this event of remaking fits into the sequence of things that begin to unfold when Christ returns. Now, we would assume, I hope correctly, I think we would assume with everyone who's interpreted this that that this falls somehow after Christ has come and the unbelievers have been judged and believers have received resurrection bodies. And one of the immediate next things, if we can put them in sequence, if it is, you know, and how to say this one after the other, I don't even know if that's accurate. But in that sequence of unfolding things is this tremendous event of the remaking of the created world. And it's Painted here in Second Peter 3.10 in almost terrifying terms. Let me read it again. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it laid bare. And, and I tell you, every time I have ever read that, I remember discovering that as a teenager and, and asking a youth pastor, well, what about this? Well, well where are we going to be when this is happening? I remember I asked the youth pastor that one time and I completely stumped him. He didn't have an idea. And I don't have the answer yet where we will be when this is happening. But let me tell you the answer I do have for you. We will be safe. We will be under the care and protection of our Lord and King. We will be in Him, and He will guarantee our safety. How will this occur? Is it some kind of a thermonuclear event? Some people have said, well, this looks like nuclear war. Let me tell you, I think that's a bad picture. Because the thrust of this passage is not fire that creates destruction. The product that is going to come from this action of God is not a planet burned to a cinder, such as a worldwide nuclear war could easily bring. You need to remember what this is part of. And and all the interpreters will tell you this, that this fire image here for what God is doing at the end of time is the kind of fire that a metallurgist uses in his little furnace as he burns the gold or boils the gold to burn away its impurities. Takes the silver and melts it down at high temperature to get all the impure things out 
to leave only the pure metal that can be worked and made into something beautiful. So it's a positive image, actually. And in fact, the, the actual verbiage there in the Greek of 2 Peter 3.10 helps us with that. The older translations only seem to emphasize the burning as if it were destruction, but newer translations have been more sensitive to the actual verb, I think. The English Standard Version says that all things not burned up, it says they will be exposed. And the New International Version that I read says they will be laid bare. The taking away of everything that is, is not necessary, everything that, that only pollutes or, or doesn't belong is the image. And the leaving of things in the beautiful form and glory in which God originally made them is what we have here. Cleansing, rebirth, renewal is the goal of this mysterious passage that talks about this remaking of the universe. And it's really much the same thing as what happened in the flood of Noah's day. You tend to think of the flood and the ark. You think, well, God was destroying the earth. Well, well, wait a minute. He didn't destroy the earth. The earth was still there when he was finished. What he did was destroy unrighteousness. He destroyed rebellion and sin and that which mocked him and and hated him. But he cleansed the earth and then made it into a place for rebirth and renewal. That is the goal here. C.S. Lewis talks about this passage and calls it creation in reverse. God remaking, taking things back to their original glory. The great philosopher and theologian Jonathan Edwards said much about the beauty that God had put in the physical world. One time he said he made the world to reflect his glory, and Edwards said every atom, every second, every particle and feature of his creation is to reflect him. You've seen some of that. You live in a beautiful part of the United States of America, and you can drive around in your daily business, and and I hope you do. And you say, even in the wintertime when the land is more bleak, it's beautiful. My wife gets all excited about the snow. It's beautiful. I say, oh, yes, but you have to shovel it. Well, that's an argument we have. She's for beauty. I'm against shoveling. But it's the idea that the earth has so much beauty in it that we haven't even seen. Why? Because what we've put in the atmosphere and what we've put in the rivers and how we've blighted the planet and built slums and factories and belching smoke and all the things that we've allowed to happen in this planet, the Lord is going to put it back new. Try to take this analogy. Here's someone, there are folks in this congregation that could do this, that visit an auto junkyard, a place where they pile up the carcasses of old cars and after they've been smashed and rusted, there they take them off and there they are all jumbled together. Someone goes there with an expert eye and he sees something. Now, if I see it, it's a pile of rust. It's got weeds growing in the floorboards. What in the world would would make you interested in that? But someone with the right eye says, oh no, get the tow truck, pay the man, I want that carcass of a car, and he takes it home. And he works on it with his expertise and applies his skills and fixes the body and fixes the engine and the transmission and the leather seats. And then one day he drives his 64 Mustang convertible to the car show gleaming black paint and chrome 
and white leather seats and wins the restoration award. Does that help you think about what's going to happen to our creation? How much more grand it's going to be when God remakes it? You know, someone has pointed out that the miracles of Jesus are not miracles of new creation, with few exceptions, perhaps multiplying bread and a couple others where something actually came into being. Nearly all of his miracles were miracles to restore things. Blind eyes see, deaf ears hear, the dead rise. That's all about restoration. And here is going to be God's great restoration project of the entire planet that once he said, as he looked upon it as creator, it is very good. He's going to be able to say that again with an exclamation mark. Edward Thurneyson concludes this. He said, the world we will enter after the return of Christ is this world. These forests, these fields, these streets, which at present are only battlefields of strife and sorrow, but they will be fields of victory and harvest, where seed that was sown in tears will be reaped and everlasting sheaves brought home to God at last. Third and finally today, do you recognize that nature's redemption waits for us? You see, this isn't something that happens separately from us. This is about God's big plan of redemption that includes His people, the church. Paul gets right to the point in Romans 8.21 when he says, Do you understand that the creation itself is going to be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And until that happens, the creation itself is groaning. What a wonderful image. Creation is involved in what God is doing with His people in Jesus Christ, His church. And when we are made new, the world, the cosmos is going to be made new. And I hope the next time and beyond we'll have a chance to look more at Revelation 21 that I just held out there to tantalize you this morning with its symbolic pictures of the new heaven and the new earth and the people of God coming from heaven to earth to dwell with God on the new earth. His glorified people. Everything He was doing fulfilled at last. What's good for the believers in Christ is good for the planet and the atmosphere and the stars as well. In closing, Second Peter tells us what this new place will be. The home of righteousness. The home you've never seen. I just talked with one of our members this morning about moving from a home where she had lived for more than 20 years to go into a retirement home. I said, what kind of a disruption was that? She said, well, the time was basically right. It was good. And she gave praise to God. You haven't seen the home God is preparing. But it's got to be tremendous. And best of all, we're going to see next time, now the dwelling of God is with men at the center of that home. How we should long to see this. You know, often Christians are mocked by people who say that guy is so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. 
You've heard me say before, I've never met that person. I'm absolutely serious. I have never met a person so heavenly-minded that they were no earthly good. Because I would turn that around and say, when we are properly heavenly-minded, when we know our home with Christ and long for that home and live in light of that home and in a hope for that home, we will be some earthly good. God will be able to use us as people who will change this society and will be the bearers of His message of grace and good news. But that's the day we long for, ladies and gentlemen, and it's not wrong to long for it. The day when heaven invades a renewed earth and the old prophecy of Habakkuk 2 finally comes true. The earth, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. I want to be there. I pray to God you are there too. Father, you are so much greater than anything we've conceived of. How silly we must look to you when a cartoonist draws his idea of heaven. How silly when the movie says the angel Clarence is going to come. Amusing, but not true to Scripture. Father, what you've created is great and grand. I pray today that we would take it with all seriousness and know that Christ is preparing this place for his own. We long for that place. And yet we would not be suicidal. You've put us here in this world and you have a job for us. As strangers and pilgrims moving toward that place, use us. Bless others through us. Let the home that we're moving toward be seen by others who want to know our true address. In Jesus' name, amen.